to uh, turn in your Bibles. We'll start tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul starts off by saying, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's not really the part that I want to focus on, so I'm going to skip down to verse 16. He's making his case, and he says, In what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk plan B. But redemption is plan A. The Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. Now the way that that's written, it probably means the creation of the earth and not the Genesis account of the creation of man and and the Garden of Eden. We know that there was something here, the Bible gives us uh, hints, that there was something here on the earth that Satan destroyed. We know that for sure because the Bible says that when God recreated the earth, it was without form and void, and he spoke light, and, and the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything created the universe from that. But there was already an earth here. It became without form and void. God didn't make it that way. Isaiah tells us that as part of a, a prophecy that he's giving on behalf of the Lord. God said, I created it not in vain. That phrase, in vain, literally is the same Hebrew phrase that's translated without form and void. So God said, I didn't make the earth that way. Well, that makes sense. How could God make the earth without form and void? How, he, how could he make the earth to be a place of chaos? That's not in him. Well, if it's not in him, if, if it's not an attribute of the almighty God, then it becoming a place without form and void had to be the work of somebody else instead of him. Are you with me? Well, when the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth, it doesn't mean Jesus was slain or as good as slain when he made Adam and Eve. It means God created the earth and set up whatever there was here before that was destroyed with redemption in mind. Before he ever made man, before he ever made the earth that would house man. Talking about Adam and Eve. The plan of God was for redemption. Now, here's a mind-boggling thought. You are right now exactly the way God wanted you to be from the foundations of the world. We look at ourselves and the times that we failed and the mistakes that we've made, the sin that we've stumbled into again and again and again and again and again, maybe. And we think... This can't be pleasing to God. We think that our condition, and it's the same condition that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, I find my flesh doing things that my spirit resents. Every child of God does. He said, he describes to us the fact that he was powerless in the flesh to overcome the flesh. And the place of peace that he came to was the realization that God knows that your flesh, he's not bothered by the imperfections of your flesh, and he wants us to focus on the fact that our righteousness is of him and not us. And that's exactly where God wants you to be. That's exactly the condition that God wants to work through you. That's the place that he wants, you to, wants to be your God and you be his people, to walk in you 
and to have his way. Not because you and I are strong, not because you and I have stumbled up on the secrets, but because that was his original plan for creation. You are a new species of being. If any man be in Christ, he is the new creature, a new creation. One translation says a new species of being. Adam wasn't. He was perfect in all the ways that God created him. But redeemed man is better than sinless man in the garden. Now, I don't know how long it took. And certainly God sees the end from before the beginning. So let's just imagine a little bit. I think most of us have the idea that God made the earth in six days, put man in the, in the middle of it, made man on the sixth day, and by Sunday noon, he had already fallen. We just assume that that was the case. But that might not be the case. He may have dwelt on this earth for a long time before the fall ever took place. We know that the time for mankind started 6,000 years ago at the point where Adam and Eve fell. But they could have been here for 1,000 years before the fall. There's nothing in the Bible that says that they did or says that they didn't. We don't know. But it's possible. God walked with man in the cool of the day. He fellowshiped with man. But he wasn't living in it. His spirit was the origin of their creation. Breathing in them the breath of life. Well, that has to be the spirit of God. But God wanted and wants and has fulfilled the redemption that you and I have now. For what purpose? So he could walk in us. He wasn't walking in Adam. He walked with Adam. But nowhere does the Bible talk about Adam as being indwelt by God. It just says God breathed into him his life and he became a spirit being. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul starts off in verse 15. He said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, some translations call that uh, or uh, translate that word understanding as spirit. The eyes of your spirit being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ and so forth. Paul is identifying his desire prompted by the Holy Ghost. This is a Holy Ghost inspired prayer and it's a prayer that the Holy Ghost saved for us to have a record of. So God's working on both ends of this, wanting us to know what the Holy Ghost's plan and purpose was for this new life. What does God walking in us and dwelling in us look like? Paul said it looks like this. Paul said it looks like an open revelation and understanding of what God has called you to do. It looks like God walking in us 
looks like our eyes being enlightened and opened to know the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the saints. To know what belongs to us through Christ Jesus. And he said that walking, God walking in us looks like our eyes being open and our understanding being full regarding the miracle working power that dwells in us now. Now notice he does not say, I pray for all of you to have an anointing. I pray for all of you to have a special ministry. I pray for all of you to be workers of miracles. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the life of God on the inside of us. He's talking about coming to the realization, coming to the understanding of who the God is that indwells us and why. Now, folks, when you, when you think about, or when I think about, God's purpose, his whole purpose, every bit of redemption was so that he could live in us. Well, if it's that important, if it was that much the plan of God, the only plan of God, the only plan God has, if that's his only plan, then that must be an important thing, shouldn't it? That should be an important thing. Jesus told his disciples after he asked them who they were and or who he was, who people said that he was, and then who did they think he was. Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, Simon, but my Father in heaven. And then he says, Upon this rock, talking about the knowledge of Jesus being the Son of God. He says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this rock I will build my church. Folks, building the church, the church itself, is everything that Jesus came to the earth to receive. Everything. Everything. Then how supernatural is the church? How miraculous is this thing called the church, the body of Christ? When I say church, I'm not talking church buildings or locations or stuff like that. I'm talking about the universal church being part of God's family. How supernatural is that? How supernatural are we? You can't get any more supernatural than the church. You can't get any more into God's miraculous plan than the church. So now God's walking in us. We've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Paul prays by the Holy Ghost, and we should too, that our eyes would be open to know who we are in Christ and what belongs to us and the miracle-working power that dwells in us full-time, all the time, the same resurrection power that was displayed to bring Jesus from death to life. How supernatural is that? Well, if we stop to think about it, we all would have to conclude it's miraculous. The new birth, every person, every person's salvation experience is miraculous. Some may have a, a spectacular experience, like Paul, who saw the light shining from heaven, fell off the animal he was riding, and heard Jesus speak to him and tell him that persecuting the church, putting people to death, and putting people in prison because they loved him is probably not the best move for him to make. I don't know if anybody else has got saved that way, do you? That was not my salvation experience. So some people may have different circumstances surrounding their salvation experience. Some may be spectacular, others not so spectacular in appearance. But the end result's the same, and that's a miracle. It's a miracle. 
Why did God want to dwell in us so much as to send Jesus to the earth to die for our sins? Remember, God's the one that made the plan. He did not have to plan for Jesus to die. He didn't. He could have come up with something else, some alternative that wouldn't have cost him his son. He could have changed the parameters of spiritual death. He's the one that said in the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. He's talking about spiritual death because Adam didn't die physically, but he died spiritually that day. He lived for another 930 years after he fell. Listen, it didn't have to be like that. God's God. He could set up the parameters of life and death any way he wanted them to be. But he went all in. He put total responsibility on spiritual death, concerning spiritual death on Adam's shoulders. And he put 100% of the responsibility for redemption on Jesus' soldiers. Soldiers. I'm trying to say shoulders, but it's not working. It was completely on Jesus. Just like spiritual death was completely on Adam, eternal life is completely on Jesus. The Bible says that was the joy that was set before Jesus that kept him steady. It says that he hated and despised the shame of the cross. The, place of the cross is a place of defeat. Not a place of victory. Resurrection is the victory. The death of Jesus is not victorious. The death of Jesus was just the legal requirement to bring you into the resurrection along with him. That's the place of victory. Also, God could walk in us. Well, what does he want us to do? What does he want to do in us? Folks, if our eyes ever become truly enlightened to that, if we ever fully understand and answer that question, then we'll be operating on the earth like Jesus did. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus was talking about the difference between him and the devil. The devil came in as a thief. He stole his way by taking possession of the serpent's body. He stole his way into the earth, but not Jesus. Jesus became a man. He, by, he did not bypass God's laws. He came in legally. And he tells us in contrast, we all know verse 10, it says, the thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But look at verse 27. John chapter 10, verse 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, he's already talked about being the shepherd, the good shepherd of the, of the sheep, the flock. Well, then we would have to understand that he's talking about the family of God and being our Lord that he identifies or illustrates as being a shepherd. But notice again in verse 27, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. One of the first things Jesus said about the church, the church that he builds, the church that was brought into existence because of the resurrection of Jesus, one of the first things that Jesus said 
about us, relegated to or concerning God's promise and intent to walk in us and be, be our God and we be his people. Jesus said one of the first things about that is you'd hear and know his voice. You'd hear and know his voice. You'd hear and know his voice. Well, what's he going to do? What's he going to talk to us about? Where's he going to lead us? Well, if the thief comes to kill, steal, and to destroy, we could certainly expect to hear his voice to avoid being destroyed and killed and stolen from. Right? If those are the works that he identifies that are works of the devil, then we should expect anything and everything of God to work contrary to or counter to what he described the devil's works to be. We were um, Christmas time, 1982. Beth and I had been married for uh, about six months, five months, I guess. And um, we were going to drive from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we were working for uh, Brother Hagen. We were going to drive from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Birmingham, Alabama. And um, we were set, I think we had uh, gotten a half day off uh, on Friday, and we we're going to start driving we had a week down there I think or several days anyway and so we had have to had to cover ourselves uh, for a short period of time that half day that uh, uh, that we were going to be gone and then whatever days or times of the week the office was open uh, during our trip and so we had uh, we had told brother Hagen some way or another he had found out we told him or whatever that uh, that we were going to go and about, oh, maybe 10 o'clock the Friday morning that we were getting ready to leave, get the car packed, we've got everything planned for, got everything ready to go, just waiting to finish out our time and then go. Brother Hagen, uh, uh, I heard that he was looking for me. And I, I was taking care of things and pretty busy. And uh, anyway, I was down uh, on the other end of the campus down by the warehouse, making sure some things were done before I left. And he saw me walking back from, or saw me in the parking lot of the, the uh, warehouse. And he pulled his car up and, and uh, stopped. And he said, get in. So I did. Got in the front seat. And he said, uh, he said, are you going to Alabama? And I said, yes, sir. We've got all the plans made and ready to go. I thought he was going to tell me that, that there was something that had come up and I wasn't going to be able to go. And so I'm, I'm listening. He said, well, he said, um, just as I woke up this morning, I had a dream that your car was struck by an, a semi-truck, 18-wheeler. And in the dream, somebody said that Beth was dead. He said, but then immediately thereafter, somebody else, I went up to where it was and somebody else said, no, Beth's okay, but Mike is dead. And then Brother Hagin said, and then I woke up. He said, so, if you're going to go, be careful. <laughs> then I sat there and I wanted to talk some more, and he said, well, I'm in a hurry. I've got to go be somewhere else. <laughs> so I got out of the car. I don't even remember saying bye. I don't remember anything else about it. I got out of the car and watched him drive off. And I'm thinking, what? 
What am I supposed to do with this? One of the things that he had said before I got out of the car, he said, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And he even said, I'm not saying you shouldn't go. (laughs) It kind of sounded that way to me, you know. He said, I'm not even saying you should go, but if you go, just be careful. Okay. So I went over to where Beth was, told her what had happened. We were both a little freaked out. And, uh, and then we stopped and we said, now, wait a minute. What do we have in our heart about this? I know you've got emotions about what you're hearing just like I did. But what do, you, what do you have in your heart? And she said, I don't know. I'm not sure I know what's in my heart right now. And I said, well, I said, I don't have anything in my spirit telling me not to go. I've got emotions that are heightened because of what we just heard, but I don't have anything in my heart about not going. I, if we really weren't supposed to go, then there'd be a witness on the inside of us that would be telling us not to. And I don't have that. God would be faithful to make sure we did have that if we were not supposed to, if we were supposed to change our plans. So long story short, or shorter, we um, went ahead and left. And we probably, all the way out of the, uh, the state of Oklahoma, I probably didn't get over 45 miles an hour. And then we started looking at the clock and saying, this is crazy. We'll never get there if we stick with this. So that was another challenge, another hurdle we had to jump to push the accelerator pedal down and start making good time. Well, we went, and, and it's, um, uh, oh, what was it? Um, it a 12-hour drive, 10 to 12-hour drive, something like that. I don't remember. It's been so long ago now since we went. But um, we were making good time. We, were, we had caught up. We were making good time. And there's a little um, town in Tennessee. It's called Germantown. And the way we were going, uh, Germantown was the place that we stopped going east or due east and turned south to go toward Alabama where I was from, where my folks were. And um, so we get into to Germantown and there was a place that I always liked to stop or frequently stop as many times as we took the trip, uh, a gas station that we would fill up and finish up on the last leg of the trip, that type of thing. But we had stopped earlier, Beth cannot drive for 30 minutes without having to stop for a bathroom. And uh, so we had stopped earlier, and I'd filled up the, the car with gas. So by the time we got to Germantown, we didn't need any gas to get there. We had enough to get, get there all the way. So we're going on a road that I'm familiar with, and um, I know we're approaching the place that I usually get gas, and I'm looking at the, the gasoline indicator, Realize I don't need to go, don't need to stop for anything. And so I'm going to not stop at the place that we're accustomed to and just go ahead and pass through and make good time. So we're coming to the intersection of where the, uh, the gas station was that I usually stopped that I was familiar with. And I'd already decided, I even told Beth, we're not, we don't have to stop for gas after all. And all of a sudden, just all of a sudden, we were just short of the intersection. Something on the inside of me said, pull into the gas station. And I didn't think about it. I didn't stop and think about, does this have anything to do with what Brother Hagin said? I wasn't thinking about anything. I just heard the words, pull into the gas station. So as I'm going, 
I put on the brakes, made a little quicker entry into the gas station than I would normally have because I wasn't planning to stop. And just as we got into the gas station, there was a, a, an 18-wheeler that came running through the red light that would have caught me broadside. And it was like everything was playing in slow motion. We pulled off. This, this truck starts barreling through the intersection, blew his horn wide open. Luckily, nobody was hit. Nobody else was really close enough to be involved in an accident. But we would have been right there. We would have been right there. Now, folks, when Jesus said, my sheep hear and know my voice, had it not been for that, Brother Hagin's dream would probably have been a reality. Looking from the other side, I had questions for a long time. Why didn't I have the dream? Why Brother Hagin? And the answer to that is most probably I trusted it more coming from him than I would have myself. I probably would have passed off the dream without another thought and might have been involved in that accident just like Brother Hagin saw. My sheep hear my voice, for I know them. My sheep hear my voice. No matter how much you think you can hear, or no matter how much you think you have trouble hearing, you hear the voice of God. Everybody does. Jesus said everybody does. Now, I'm firmly convinced that not enough people are walking in fellowship with God or walking close enough to him to be conscious of that voice. But if there's anything in life that we should develop, shouldn't that be it? If there's any place of confidence in God that we should develop ourselves, shouldn't that be it? Folks, there's a baptism. Turn with me over to John chapter 1. There's a baptism that is of Jesus exclusively. John chapter 1, verse 32. And John, speaking of John the Baptist, and John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Now, folks, what that means is John had no interaction with Jesus prior to baptizing him, even though they were cousins. He had no interaction with Jesus prior to Jesus baptizing, uh, John baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River in any spiritual context whatsoever. If he had had interactions with Jesus as a cousin on the earth, it was all just natural cousin stuff. There was nothing that John the Baptist was clued in about who Jesus was prior to the point in time where Jesus came to him in the Jordan River to be baptized and where John bare record that the Holy Ghost descended on him. Now what does that mean to us? 
it should mean that we recognize at least a little bit the supernatural and even miraculous nature or characteristic of the being in the family of God. Once John knew Jesus walked up to be baptized, John said, according to somebody else's account, one of the other gospel writers' account, John says, I ought to be baptized of you. And Jesus said, suffer it to be so for this time that it will fulfill all righteousness. He's just simply saying, this is the plan of God. We're all just playing a part here. So John baptizes him, and that's when the Holy Ghost comes and descends on him and remains, which John said was God's clue about how he would know, how John would know who the Messiah is, which means he didn't know it before, right? And John's the one that said, there's one coming after me that will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 13. I think, and you take it for what it's worth, I think one of the saddest moments in all of eternity is going to be when the church gets there and figures out how little of the power of God and the blessings of God and the the nature of God that we used here on the earth. The Bible says that when we get there, God will wipe away every tear. Well, what in the world would people possibly be crying about if not missed opportunities, if not unfulfilled potential? We're certainly not going to be crying about being in heaven. We're not going to be looking around at heaven saying, oh, I thought it would be bigger. Nobody's going to say, well, okay, it's nice to see, but I want to go back to the earth. Nobody. So what could possibly be the source of tears? The only thing I can understand, or the only thing that makes sense to me, I should say, is if we see, if our eyes are opened, and we see who we really are, And see what power God invested in us and how little we used it. If not that, somebody's going to have to give me another possibility. Could be that a part of that is that we recognize loved ones that aren't there. And there has to be a wiping away of our memory in that. To know that we have loved ones that are suffering for eternity in hell. Well, first hell, kept in hell for a while, and then the lake of fire. There has to be some means that God has provided for us not to know that for eternity. Because if we did, that would make eternity at least sorrowful to a a measure. But again, that's just my thinking. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. I just can't imagine God would let us go through eternity wishing that our loved ones had made it. That just doesn't make sense to me. The church is a supernatural and a miraculous living being. Acts chapter 13, it tells us about the the time when God separated uh, or the, the 
five apostles and prophets separated Paul and Barnabas for the work God said that he had for them to do. They prayed over him, laid hands on him, and sent him out. Verse, uh, verse 4, beginning Acts chapter 13, verse 4. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. This is John Mark. And when they had gone to the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, that must mean moved with the Holy Ghost, not baptized and speaking in tongues. But apparently the Holy Ghost prompts him to do this. Filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now I want you to notice something. Paul doesn't pronounce sickness or disease on this guy. It's a temporary condition where the hand of God is upon him to prevent his sight for what Paul calls a season. I don't know how long that was. The Bible doesn't give us any information about when he was able to see again. But notice that the, the, uh, the event, the display of power, caused the deputy to, to receive and to recognize that the God that Paul is talking about, the word that he's preaching is true. If God's no respecter of persons, why wouldn't he do the same thing today as he did then? John Lake told a story about um, being in a meeting in South Africa with a person that he didn't know. And he came into the meeting and he said, this guy, the way he described it, he said, this guy had the funniest vocabulary of anybody you've ever heard. Now, I don't know what that means, but it, it, it indicated or implies to me, I guess, that it was, he was a guy that wasn't necessarily educated. And his style was different than what Lake was accustomed to seeing or hearing or whatever. But he said this, he said, but the more I listened Lake said about the other guy, he said, the more I listened, the more I became aware that this was the most spiritual man of any that he had met up to that point in time. Lake said there was a, um, a guy that, for whatever reason, felt the need to get up and move around in the service and talk, and he was being disruptive to some degree. He didn't say anything about there being anything wrong with the guy. He's not trying to disrupt, meaning... He's not being motivated by the devil to do something. He just won't stay still. So finally, after several times of this guy getting up and moving around and creating a little bit of a disturbance, the minister pointed at him and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, sit down. And Lake said, this guy did not sit down. He went face first to the floor and stayed there for the rest of the night. There were people that tried to move him and couldn't even move his hand. 
There are accounts, eyewitness accounts, in the ministry of Maria Woodworth Etter, a lady evangelist, that in her meetings there would be times where sometimes it would happen to her and sometimes it would happen to somebody else. But the power of God would freeze them like a statue. It happened to her. As a matter of fact, the book that uh, tells about her life story and her ministry has a picture of her in one of these trance conditions or whatever you want to call it, one of these frozen statue things. And she's standing there with her arm up. She stayed that way for three days and nights. Now, folks, you can't do that. I don't think anybody's strong enough to stay frozen in position for three days and nights. You just can't do it. There was one time where it wasn't her, but there was a young girl in the service. Just a little small church. Had a, a wood stove on one end of the potbelly wood stove on one end of the uh, auditorium. And this little girl is standing there frozen in position, standing still. And her parents were real concerned about her. I don't know if they didn't have experience in this kind of stuff or just what, but they were concerned about her. And finally the mom asked Sister Edder, can we at least move her over by the fire, by the stove? I don't want her to get cold. And so Sister Edder said, well, I don't know. I don't know anything about this stuff after it happens. If that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. Well, apparently the dad was this hulking monster of a guy as far as size is concerned. And he wrapped his arms around his daughter and tried to lift her up. He couldn't get her off the floor. He couldn't get, she was glued. She was standing straight, but her feet were glued. And other people, they got three or four guys finally around her. And this little girl is just maybe 100 pounds soaking wet, you know. But they couldn't move her. My point is simply this, folks. God used to do some really neat stuff. What would make us think that he changed? Again, thinking about some stories of Lake. Lake tells some stories about how that when he was pastoring in South Africa, there would be people in his congregation that had loved ones or relatives in other parts of the world. One lady came and had received a letter from her son back in the States somewhere. And um, he had contracted some kind of cancerous disease or something. Doctors had given up on him, just told him it was a matter of time. He was a professor at a university, had to quit his job. And so she asked Lake to pray. Well, the service was going on. And at a certain point in time during the service, Lake said he felt impressed to ask the woman for the letter that she got from her son describing the, the situation and the difficulty involved and whatever the particulars were. And so she gave it to, to Lake. And so Lake read the pertinent parts of the letter and gave out the information and then asked everybody to pray with him. And so he just knelt down there at the side of the platform or on the end of the platform. And he said, I began to pray. And he said, I was aware, after a little bit of, after a while praying, he said, I became aware of a stillness in the auditorium that's like that just before a cyclone hits. 
Now, I know a lot of people don't have experience with that kind of stuff, but that really spoke to me because uh, when I was a, a senior in high school, just really a couple of days before I graduated from high school, we had a tornado come through our town. And uh, just before the tornado came, I was at the Baptist church meeting a friend there, and I walked across the, uh, the little street. They owned property on both sides of the street. And so I had parked over on the, the left side, and I was walking into the, the uh, Sunday school building of the Baptist church. And it was eerie. Have any of you ever experienced something like that before, a cyclone or, or a hurricane or um, tornado or something like that? Some of you, a couple of you? It was so weird. I remember I stopped in the middle of the street, Nobody said anything about a tornado coming. There had been no tornado warnings that I was privy to or had heard or anything like that. And I just realized this is such a strange feeling. The air seems to be charged with electricity. And I just stood there for a second. And then all of a sudden I heard some commotion going on on the left side of the street. So I turned back, turned to look back to where I'd come from. And it was a gravel parking lot. And all of a sudden, cars are starting to shift in the parking lot. Well, I'm not thinking tornado. I'm not thinking anything except that's a little bit unusual. And I really didn't know what happened. I went on into the, um, uh, to the Sunday school annex, found the people that I was looking for. And by that time, the, the tornado had hopped and skipped and jumped around a couple of places. And there was a lot of commotion going on because of the damage that was done. And that's what Lake used to describe that time of prayer. He said it was so still. He said I was aware or conscious of what he thought was or interpreted to be spiritual dominion. So I guess if, the, if uh, tornadoes have their own quiet thing, spiritual dominion given by God has its own quiet thing beforehand too maybe. Anyway, to finish the story, Lake all of a sudden found himself in this woman's son's home. And he's sitting there with a little girl on his lap. The other side of the room is his wife. He said there was no joy in the house. Nothing about either of their countenance to indicate that they were children of God in any way whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he, John, uh, Lake concluded from their appearance... He said, there's no way these people could know God. But he saw his, the dad's reaction or interaction with the daughter. He said that was the only redeeming quality that he had observed in the room. Now, he's 7,000 miles away on the other side of the world. But he said he saw everything just as clear as day, just as clear as being there himself. He said he walked over to where the guy was. Again, he's, this is a vision that he's having. He laid hands on him prayed for his healing, and then all of a sudden he was back in South Africa in that service. Well, after about three weeks, they got word back that the, the, the lady's son had been healed of whatever this deadly disease was, and nobody could explain what had happened. And he gives a lot of di different illustrations and uh, examples of things like that where he was transported in prayer to help people that were on the other side of the world sometimes. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty neat to me. So I'll say it again. 
God used to do neat stuff. I wonder when he quit wanting to do that kind of stuff. I believe he still does want to. But who's he going to use for that kind of stuff? I mean, if we're not even... Well, I don't want to say if we're not conscious. I started to say if we're not conscious of that, but I don't think that's the best way to say it. If we're not making room for that kind of thing, then how can God use us? I doubt very seriously if many of us wake up in the morning thinking about these supernatural things and these miraculous stories that we've heard in other places and consider God might want to do one here. I wonder what Jesus thought as he walked around. I wonder how Jesus started his day. I wonder what kind of expectation he had regarding the power of God. I saw a quote the other day of, uh, by George Stormont. He was a man that we had uh, come to our church several times. He was the guy that was the, uh, the younger minister that Smith Wigglesworth kind of took took under his wing, mentored him, and um, it was his church, Brother Stormont's church, that Wigglesworth died in. And one of the things that Brother Stormont said, and, and he, he said this, I saw this as a quote that was published in one of his books, but he said this kind of thing many times in conversations that I had with him. Because when he became known as the, the guy that had befriended Wigglesworth, he's one of the last people that were alive. He's gone on to be with the Lord now, but he was one of the last people to be alive that really knew and had some experience with Wigglesworth. And he said this. He said, with so much made about the miracles, particularly the raising of the dead, Wigglesworth raised 27 people from the dead. There's a dispute about the number. Some say it was only 24. He's 24 ahead of me. How about you? But he said so much has been made about the miracles and the, the healing works and the different things that took place under Wigglesworth ministry. He said people failed to recognize. It became overshadowed. The holy life that he committed himself to live. Remember, that's where we started in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6. Come out from among them. Don't get tied up in the world. Because God said, I will walk in them, they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. Now, I know just as soon as you mention the word holiness or living right or something like that, I know the grace people just get all wound up. Well, I'm sorry if some people have felt under bondage by things that they didn't understand in the Bible. But the Bible does teach right living. The Bible does teach commitment to God through holiness and sanctification. So whether you like that or not, or whether that makes you give warm, fuzzy feelings or not, it's, it's still true. God used to do some really neat stuff. Thank God he never changes. God never changes.
Lake particularly talked about the lightnings of God. He had prayed that way. He would lay hands on people to be healed or to be delivered. And he would prayed that the lightnings of God would burn out that disease. He talked about every experience that, that, of, of power that displayed any degree of power of God. He talked about that being flashes of lightning. Flashes of lightning. I've always been intrigued by Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. Ask ye if the Lord reigned in the time of the latter rain. Talking about a moving of the Holy Ghost. Ask ye if the Lord reigned in the time of the latter rain. And so shall he make bright clouds. That word bright clouds is translated lightnings. In another place in the scripture. It's only used twice. The word that's translated I mean. One time it's translated lightnings. One time it's translated bright clouds. Well the glory cloud was a bright cloud in the Old Testament that signified the presence of God. The lightnings, as it's used in the other place in the Scripture, is talking about the power of God on display. So the word that's translated in the King James English, bright clouds, has to mean a display of God's power and a manifestation of His presence. It's the only other way that the Bible refers to. It's the only two ways that the Bible refers to that word as it's translated. So ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so shall he make bright clouds and give showers, bring showers of rain to every one grass in the field. So he's got to be talking about a display of power or a manifestation of his presence that brings people into the kingdom of God. That's the only grass of the field, the only precious fruit of the earth that God cares anything about. And he says God will do it with lightnings. So shall he make bright clouds or lightnings. Folks, I believe we're coming into a place that's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen or known before. And I, I, I feel impressed to tell you this. I don't really know why. But I feel impressed to tell you about something that happened last Sunday night. There were, um, uh, there were two ladies that came in to the service uh, a little bit late. Not, not super late, but came in a little bit late after we'd, just after we'd started and they sat and they listened to the, to the message I was teaching on our better sight. I was teaching on the fact that uh, the foundation of God's word is stronger than the foundations of the mountains that Jesus said we could move by faith. And so they came up after the service. Uh, the younger lady came up and, and told me a little bit of what was going on. The older lady sat down in the chair right over here. And so the young lady told me that, uh, that they had come, they enjoyed the service, and, and they uh, uh, wanted me to pray for the older lady so I went over there and I asked her uh, what was the, the thing and she had a lot of stuff wrong with it she kind of just wanted to pray for an overhaul I guess but um, particularly the, the pain that was in her legs she had some kind of nerve, nerve damage as I understood or whatever and um, so she was uh, in quite a bit of pain and you could see you could tell that, that she wasn't put it on she really was hurting so I asked her what she believed and she gave a generic answer without really meaning much of anything. And so I said, well, okay. I quoted a scripture. I said, Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sickness. And by his stripes you were healed. And so I laid hands on her and I prayed for her healing. Agreed with her that she was healed by the power of God. And then I stepped back a little bit and I said, was it, is it done? And she stopped and I could tell she was trying to search for pain. And that's what she was going to judge it by. Well, she found it. 
So she said, no, I, I guess it didn't work. And I told her why. I said, it's because you're trying to judge whether or not it works by what you feel. I explained to her about believing that you receive before you have and, and some of that kind of thing. It didn't take very long, just a couple of minutes, explaining some of the principles. So I said, your job is to believe you receive it when we pray because God said that's when it's yours. may not make sense to your head, but that's what the Bible says that we're supposed to believe. I explained uh, a little bit about if she had come for salvation and didn't feel anything in her body, she'd still know that she prayed the prayer of salvation and, and was born again. She understood that. It kind of matched the experience that she had of being born again. So she said, okay, I see that. So I said, you want to pray again? She said, yeah. I said, all right, here's your job. Listen to what I say and then believe you receive it when we finish praying. She said, okay. I laid hands on her and there was a jolt of something that went into her that was stronger than anything I've ever felt. Simple prayer, curse sickness, rebuke the pain, step back, and I asked her again. I said, is it done? She looked up at me and she said, wow. She wasn't jumping up and down about anything, but she was certainly aware of something that had happened. And she said, the pain's gone. I said, that's great. Now you know that faith in God's word works. Now I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they're going to do with it, if anything. All I know is that something unusual happened. And I got a distinct and specific sense that it was not a one-time thing, but things are going to increase. Now, time will certainly tell. But I believe in what I got from the Lord. I'm looking for lightnings. And God said we'd have them. We've been praying this stuff for many, many years. I believe we're going to have them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that you are the almighty God. The creator of heaven and earth and the deliverer from all of our enemies. Thank you, Father, for your great plan of redemption. So that by the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus our Lord, you can now walk in us. We can now be your people and you can now be our God. Lord, show us the reason why that's so important to you. Show us how much you desire for us to walk on this earth and trample the devil in all of his works. Show us, Lord, the unbounded victory that the sacrifice of Jesus brought to us. Show us, Lord, how that there is no sickness and no disease, no evil work, no circumstance that can conquer those who believe in your word. Lord, we read stories of a lot of neat stuff that you used to do. Do them again. Use us. 
do them again. I thank you, Father, that healing shall flow like a river. That the healing power of God shall flow like a river. And it will bring in multitudes to the kingdom of heaven. Father, you showed your power. Not just healing power, but even as Paul. When he was met by the sorcerer. Appropriated the power of God to remove his objections. And to stop him from being a hindrance. Lord, let your power flow through us. Open our eyes that we, we might see and know the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. The same power that you raised Jesus from the dead with. Lord, let there be lightnings. Let there be bright clouds. Let there be a continuous manifestation of your presence and display of your power. We know that's what you want to do. We know that you said that the glory of the church would be greater at the last than at the first. And these are things that we saw at the first, the beginning stages of the church. So we know that you'll do this and even more according to your plan and purpose. Now, Lord, we've asked for it. We've been praying for it for a long time. And you said that if we'd ask, you'd make bright clouds or lightnings. You'd bring showers of rain, moves of the Holy Ghost, in other words, and add people to your family. Make that prayer good, Lord. It's a prayer you prompted us to pray. Bring it to pass. In Jesus' precious name. We'll give you all the glory and the honor for everything that's done, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe we're living in exciting times. I'm looking for the miraculous to be commonplace. I'm looking for God to astound us in a variety of ways. Will you believe with me? Amen. Well, thank you so much for turning out on a Wednesday night. We love you. You're dismissed. <laughs>